0: How could Monsieur Eaton do this? Like, who would f*** that up? Who would make this mistake? If somebody gave me a Bruins jersey, I would die before I had to wear it. And my mother would have shredded it to pieces. You're making this child compromise his principles and his integrity, which is exactly the opposite of what Maurice Richard was.
1: That right there was the voice of Shireen Ahmed, activist, journalist, and co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast, Now, Shireen has been known to get pretty fired up when she's talking about topics that matter to her. But in this case, she's not talking about some boneheaded thing someone said on Twitter or a boneheaded action of a coach or GM somewhere. No, Shireen's getting that worked up about the actions of a fictional character in a Quebecois children's book written four decades ago. Okay, so this is a story that most of us know. It's become about as quintessentially Canadian as you can get. It was featured on the $5 bill, for heaven's sake. It's been made into an award-winning animated film, it's been turned into a symphony, I mean, it's even been to space. It's a story that, well, if you're a Leafs fan, you have mixed feelings about, because it's a story about a young boy who desperately, passionately, defiantly wishes his Leafs jersey would be eaten by a hundred million moss. They say nothing unites this country like it's shared hatred for the Leafs, right? Well, bring it on. Okay, but seriously, despite it being 40 years old and very, very much about life in a small Quebec town in the 1940s, Rock Carrier's The Hockey Sweater, originally called an abominable maple leaf on the ice, it is a classic. Why? Because it taps into something very deep in all of us. Fandom. Leaf fans, Hab fans, and every other kind of fan you can imagine. It speaks to us about identity, power, and belonging. Today, we dig into how it was written, how it was received at the time, and how it's still being received. We hope today's story from producer Paul Matthews might help you see an old text in a new way. I'm Scotty Willits, and this is Least Forever. For Died in the Wolf fans like us, game day is a sacred ritual. You've got to have your jersey, your friends or family, your go-to food, and of course, your drinks. And tunes play a big role in that too because the players aren't the only ones who need to get psyched for puck drop. That's why our buds have put together the Blue and White Warm-Up Playlist. From Feel It Still by Portugal The Man to Low High by The Black Keys, the Blue and White Warm-Up Playlist will get your juices flowing when it's time for battle. Check it out and, of course, all the other official Toronto Maple Leafs playlists exclusively on Apple Music or the Leafs app. The
2: winters of my childhood were long, long seasons. We lived in three places, the school, the church, and the skating rink. But our real life was on the skating rink.
3: Those are the iconic opening lines to Rock Carrier's The Hockey Sweater. Rock Carrier wrote the story, Based on an experience that happened in his own childhood. But writing an autobiographical story was never the initial plan. It all started with a commission from CBC Radio in 1979. For those who don't know, basically, a commission is when an agency or a publication pays a writer to draft a particular piece. And in this case, they weren't even looking for a children's story. What they actually wanted was a political essay.
1: These people in
2: Quebec and in Canada want to split it up. They
3: want to take it away from their children. They want to break it down. No. The market for political essays about Quebec in 1979. Is booming. Since the election of Rene Levesque and the province's first PQ government three years earlier, no one knows what country they'll even be living in in a year. Language laws are changing, businesses are moving east to Toronto, and Levesque is promising a referendum.
2: Quebecers will be voting on whether to give their government a mandate to negotiate Sovereignty
4: Association.
3: Carrier can feel the ground beneath his feet is shifting and it just so happens that because his new novel, La Guerre Yes Sir, has just become a big hit in English Canada, the CBC latches onto him as their it boy on the ground. The one voice that can make sense of all this, who can answer the question that the rest of the country is suddenly desperate to know. What does Quebec want? Rock is 82 now, but he can still vividly recall how that call from CBC's Toronto office came like a bolt from the blue.
4: Hi, thank you.
5: Oh, I'm really happy to do it. So it's a long time ago that I wrote that story. At the time, I was uh, a young, very young writer, a young father. I had just bought a house, a car to be able to go to work. And, uh, of course, I was looking for any possible dollar that I could uh, See somewhere. And suddenly, like by miracle, I got a phone call. And it was coming from Toronto, CBC Toronto. And they were asking, Would you answer the question, What does Quebec want? And I must say that I was thinking of the check that will be coming through the mail. <laughs> so, yes, of course, of course. And I started to work. I worked a full day, and I was not happy with the result. What I read was exactly, or almost exactly, like what everybody could see in the newspaper in the morning. And I didn't want to do that boring stuff because I was a young writer. I was solid writer. <laughs> I had a great future, so I should not do some bad stuff. So I said, I cannot write this. And I was told, listen, write whatever you want. I don't know how it came to me, but suddenly I thought about that experience that I had when I was a kid to receive from the Eton organization in Toronto, a sweater of the maple leaves, when everybody on the skating rink in my little village was wearing the Canadien, Montreal Canadien uniform, famous, glorious uniform.
3: (laughs) Had you ever thought of writing that story before?
5: No, no, not at all. I don't know. I don't know how it came to me. I wrote it very fast and was very fast in one day and it was not badly written I sent it to Sheila Fishman my English translator she translated the story in one day also very fast and very well and suddenly we were on Friday in CBC studio starting to record
2: Real battles were won on the skating rink. Real strength appeared on the skating rink. The real leaders shoved themselves on the skating rink. School was a sort of punishment. Parents always want to punish children, and school is their most natural way of punishing us. However, school was also a quiet place where we could prepare for the next arcade game, lay out our next strategies. As for church, we found there the tranquility of God. There, we forgot school and dreamed about the next arcade game. Through our daydreams, it might happen that we would recite a prayer. We would ask God to help us play as well as Maurice Richard.
3: Now, it's important to note that even though the book actually came out in 1979, the story takes place in 1946. That was the year the Montreal Canadiens beat the Boston Bruins to win the Stanley Cup. And a large part of that win was to the credit of the Habs' new star, 50-goal scorer, Maurice Rocket Richard. To Rock, who was only nine years old, and his young friends, Rocket Richard was a god.
5: We had, as Catholics to recite the the Rosary, but when it was Saturday night, we were cheating, you know, not saying all the prayers because the radio was there, and we will hear at seven o'clock bonsoir Canada <laughs> that was the beginning <laughs> of the show, <laughs> and there was the old family around the radio, it was before television and Richard was like, I don't know, an angel, I, I don't know. But on Sunday, when we were on the ice, we were just trying to do what the rocket did the day, the day before. And <laughs> going back to school, I still remember that. that. That's really amazing. Going back to school, you know, we were in a small village, and the, the, the wintertime, there was a lot of snow, the snow was not clean, so we could walk and uh, sometimes skate on the road. But going back to school on Monday, we were a group, and in our class, there was a schoolboy called Jacques. Jacques Chabot, I still remember his name. And he was able to describe the game like we heard it on the Saturday. So we were 10 kids, 12 kids, 15 kids walking to school around Jacques, when Jacques was describing the game. And there was all the reaction, the applauding, the shouts. That was a great way to go to school, (laughs) where we have to be more quiet. (laughs)
3: We've all been there. This is what kids do. They find their own identities by imitating others. And so, for Rock and his friends, wearing the number nine, styling their hair perfectly to be just like Maurice Richard, taping their sticks the same way, that was their way of channeling him. That nickname, Rocket, it wasn't just a clever handle. Even in his early 20s, Richard was the most explosive player in the league and the best French-Canadian to ever ever wear a Habs jersey. Rashard became the first NHLer ever to score 50 goals in 50 games. It would take another 16 years before anyone else in the league would match him and Boom Boom Jeffrey, on? He'd need 14 more games to do it in. Years later, Hall of Fame goalie Glenn Hall would say, What I remember most about Rocket was his eyes. When he came flying towards you with the puck on his stick, his eyes were all lit up, flashing and gleaming like a pinball machine. Because Richard wasn't just an athlete. Like Pele, Muhammad Ali, Roberto Clemente, Billie Jean King, he transcended sport. He was a cultural icon. There was a new defiant energy emerging in the 40s and 50s. And Richard, he embodied that. To understand everything that was going on, we sat down with Jenny Allison, a curator at the Canadian Museum of History.
4: Quebec was a different place. It was a more conservative province, and some people have even called this period the Grand Noisseur, or the Great Darkness. The province was led at the time by Maurice Duplessis and his Union National government, and they were remembered for using restrictive laws to intervene in labor conflicts. Uh, there was a lot of censorship of cultural texts in this era, and they had a very close relationship with the Catholic Church. The Church itself tried to help maintain the status quo, from the pulpit, priests were actually telling Quebec's Quebecois not to rock the boat. So priests were advocating for, against you know, labour unrest and advocating against social change. And at this time, the church controlled schools and they also uh, controlled health care in the province of Quebec. The NHL wouldn't have acknowledged it at the time, but there was a lot of evidence of marginalization of French Canadian players in this era. And Richard was really central to this debate in the 1940s because he and other players felt that they were not treated equally in the league. So it seemed to many observers, and Richard himself, that he could be slashed and checked by other Anglo players with impunity. Uh, But he and other Francophone players were called out for every infraction. One way that we know about these differences between French and English are because Maurice Richard had a column in a Montreal newspaper in the 1950s. So it was actually ghostwritten. Richard actually documented some of his concerns about the treatment of french canadians within the nhl and he actually used this platform to criticize clarence campbell who was the president of the nhl at the time and to talk about the ways in which the nhl was overlooking these on-ice attacks against francophone players and in the column he went so far as to call clarence campbell a dictator with the nhl who ignored the rights of his french canadian constituents and in the end he was forced to apologize uh, which in itself was seen as an insult to many of his fans. And actually, a group of fans got together and paid the fine on Richard's behalf. You know, this helps flare this debate that's going on over the role of French players within the NHL. And this is a debate that's going on in Quebec, but that the rest of Canada isn't necessarily understanding.
3: Clarence Campbell, the president of the NHL, became a stand in for the evil Anglo power structure. And as tension between Richard and Campbell continued to build, a boiling point was inevitable. When it came, it spilt over into the largest public demonstration in Quebec since the First World War, the Richard Riot. So it's March, 1955. Inside the Montreal Forum, the Habs are playing their hated enemies, the Boston Bruins.
4: And during that game, Rashar got in a vicious fight with a player called Hal Laco. So much so that the referee took away a stick and Rashar was so angry that he grabbed a stick from another player and continued to attack Laco. So as a consequence of this fight, Rashar was suspended for the remainder of the season and also the playoffs. So this was problematic for hockey fans because the Canadians at the time were poised to win the Stanley Cup and losing Rashar was a really, you know, big concern. And it was also a problem because of what Richard symbolically meant and because of this broader context of what was going on in terms of his vocal complaints about the way that Francophones were treated in the NHL.
2: It began with rougher and rougher play, free swinging sticks. And finally, President Clarence Campbell of the National Hockey League put his foot down. Whether this type of conduct is the product of temperamental instability or willful defiance of the authority in the game does not matter. It is a type of conduct which cannot be tolerated by any player, star or otherwise. In the result, Le Shire will be suspended from all games, both league and playoff, for the balance of the current season.
4: Clarence Campbell attends the very next Montreal Canadiens game at the Forum. And when he arrives at the game, fans are ready. They start throwing things at him. They throw boots, they throw programs, they throw eggs, and apparently a pickled egg pig's foot
5: you knew something was going to happen but you didn't know what and uh, he he should campbell should
4: not have been at the game and if he had not been at the game we would have had no riot
2: the main entrance of the forum on st catherine street a huge crowd of people was assembled here the number in the Hundreds and a thousand. They're trying to stop the streetcars. They're on the streetcar tracks, but the uh, police at the moment seem to have things uh, well in hand. As they jeer, as as the police try to push them back, the police are now forming a line and pushing the crowd back. percent right of it, as if I was saying, "Abba Campbell." Oh wait, That was how it started. The game had to be called off as the crowd attacked Mr. Campbell. And then the mobs, many of them not ticket holders, surged up and down the main street of Montreal. They smashed windows and they looted, and they even set fires. On the side, the rioting raged on for hours. Scores were arrested, but it was early morning before things quieted down. And Richard himself appealed for no repetition of the riot. My dear friend, I want to do what is good for the people of Montreal and my team. There was no repetition. But the March 17th riot stands as one of the blackest nights in Canadian sports.
3: Now, obviously, all of this, Richard's column, Clarence Campbell, the riot, that all happens nine years after the events in Rock Carrier's The Hockey Sweater. But the events of the 50s, they're still felt in its pages. Young Rock might not have seen his hero inside of that context, but the audience listening to Carrier on the radio in 1979, and the audience watching the NFB short film years later, would have projected that knowledge onto every page and every frame. In the pages of Carrier's story, it's 1946, and Rock is just a kid living in Saint-Justine, a rural town about an hour or two southeast from Quebec City. His mother, Madame Carrier, wants to make her son happy to buy him the jersey he desires. But English is still king. All business is conducted in it. And her rural education has kept her from speaking in the language of power.
2: One day, my Montreal Canadian sweater was uh, too small. Then it got torn and had holes in it. My mother said, rock, if you wear that old sweater, people are going to think we are poor. Then she did what she did whenever we needed new clothes. She started to leave through the catalog the Eaton Company sent us in the mail every year. My mother was proud. She did not want to buy our clothes at the general store. The only things that were good enough for us were the latest styles from Eaton's catalog. My mother did not like the order forms included with the catalog. They were written in English, and she did not understand a word of it. To order my hockey sweater, she did as she usually did. She took out her writing paper and wrote in her gentle schoolteacher's hand Cher Monsieur Eaton, would you be kind enough to send me a Canadian sweater for my son, Rock, who is 10 years old and a little too tall for his age, and Dr. Robitaille thinks he's a little too thin? I'm sending you $3, and please send me what's left if there's anything left. I hope your rapping will be better than last time.
3: Madame Carrier is quaintly doing what she's used to, treating Monsieur Eaton not as the head of a distant corporation, but like he's an acquaintance in town. She doesn't understand the English order forms, so she's reverting to a bygone form of communication. And Madame Carrier's French, the Eaton's people can't understand a lick of it. And for young Rock, that miscommunication will lead to tragedy. Two weeks later, we received the
2: sweater. That day, I had one of the greatest disappointments of my life. I would even say that, on that day, I experienced a very great sorrow. Instead of the red, white, and blue Montreal Canadien sweater, Mr. Eaton had sent us a blue and white sweater with a maple leaf on the front, the sweater of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I had always worn the red, white, and blue Montreal Canadian sweater. All my friends wore the red, white, and blue sweater. Never had anyone in my village ever worn the Toronto sweater. Never had we seen a Toronto maple leaf sweater. Besides, the Toronto team was regularly trounced by the triumphant Canadiens With tears in my eyes, I found the strength to say, I never wear that uniform. My boy first... You are going to try it on. If you make up your mind about things before you try, my boy, you won't go very far in this life. My mother had pulled the blue and white Toronto maple leaf sweater over my shoulders, and already my arms were inside the sleeves. She pulled the sweater down and carefully smoothed all the creases in the abominable maple leaf on which, right in the middle of my chest, were written the words, Toronto Maple Leafs. I wept. I I never wear it.
3: Rock's mother will not return the jersey, because she doesn't want to offend the Protestant department store magnate in faraway Toronto. He is, after all, a Maple Leafs fan. Or at least... She presumes he is, and so no, the mistake cannot be appealed. Rock must wear the jersey. He must be the only one in town in the blue and white, and he must face ostracism and shame for it. It's genius. In a very simple story written in very simple language, Carrier has captured the tension at the heart of Quebec society, the very thing the English CBC asked him to do, but the very thing he felt he couldn't do in a standard essay. What the boy wants, for tragedy to have been averted, to not have to wear the sweater of his enemy, to just play hockey with his friends, is what Quebec wants. I've often wondered what it is about the hockey sweater that makes it so universally beloved, across Canada at least. In so many ways, Carrier's story seems like it should be too regionally specific to travel well. In both 1940s rural Quebec in which it's set and the late 70s in which it was written, The abominable maple leaf is a symbol of Anglo authority, linguistic, cultural, and political power. How on earth did it speak to such a large swath of such a wide and diverse country? Did the rest of Canada, a nation so often divided, really hate the leaf so much that they could all imagine the shame of being forced to wear the blue and white? For a while I thought so. That was my half-baked theory, at least. Until I spoke to Shireen Ahmed. She's the voice you heard off the top of the podcast. Shireen is a writer, a podcaster, a sports activist, focusing on Muslim women in sport and the intersection of race, misogyny, and athletics. She's a fantastic writer and a brilliant mind. Also, it must be said, a Habs fan. But even then, I didn't necessarily at all anticipate hearing that she saw herself in the fate of Young Rock. So give me a sense. The first time you encounter Rock Carrier as the hockey sweater.
0: The first time it was read to me because I was eight years old. It was actually not the hockey sweater. It was Le Chandail d'Hockey. So it was read to me in French by Madame Alcenault, who I think was a Nordiques fan, but she never, she never disclosed that. <laughs> and I remember being transfixed. I had never seen myself reflected so poignantly In a story before and I was not raised in the 40s in rural Quebec are you sure yes (laughs) I'm a Pakistani Canadian Muslim woman who was born and raised in Halifax Nova Scotia so I wasn't in Ontario I wasn't in Quebec when I read the story it was you know it came into my life it was on the east coast of Canada in the family of a very very diehard Canadians Montreal Canadians family like my mother's first love was Elvis Presley, then my father, then Guy Lafleur, in that order. In that order. <laughs> and so I had always, you know, known them as being the most important. So not only did I understand this little boy's passion for them, it was also the way that he was excluded so brutally from something. And that I felt uh, that resonated with me for for different reasons, obviously. But I just felt I could empathize with him and I sympathized with him at the same time, and there were so many little underlying messages in this. It was just, it was probably the most impactful book of my childhood. It was the first time I ever saw the vulnerability and the frustration of a child at the hands of their tyrannical parents. I mean, his mother's lovely. She writes these beautiful letters to Monsieur Heaton, right? But... She doesn't understand the trauma she's inflicting on him by putting him in a Leafs jersey. And I remember I was a very, very active and very, you know, precocious little girl. So I used to sort of feel this push, my parents doing the good thing, the polite thing. And I'd be like, no, but this is so this is a crime against humanity, you know, kind of thing. And I remember really feeling his pain like his pain in terms of being forced to wear the sweater because his mother's like, we can't return it we couldn't possibly return it he would be
3: this millionaire like 500 (laughs) miles that way will be horribly offended and will never you know yeah
0: and like she didn't understand his level of what it meant to him and you know and practicality said they were living somewhere that they couldn't obviously go and they chose not to get them from the general store and i mean i don't even know if jerseys were available at that general store because i had a lot of questions about that but it was how frustrated he was and how he was he wasn't even allowed to express himself in the way he wanted to and that resonated with me and that the exclusion of the way that he wasn't chosen and he had to sit off the ice and he was probably one of the strong, it's implied that he was one of the strongest players, but he wasn't able to participate, I felt that, that exclusion I felt that I was a stronger person but because I looked different than everybody else like Halifax in the 80s one is, wasn't exactly hugely diverse Right. so I that also resonated with me so that's something else that I could I could feel because of what he looked like and what he looked like was a Leafs player he had the Maple Leaf on his chest and that was not it was accepted or slash tolerated but not really understood and not included and right. that just being tolerated is something that I understand. that, that I really connected with.
2: So, I was obliged to wear the maple leaf sweater. When I arrived on the rink, all the Maurice Richards in red, white, and blue came up one by one to take a look. When the referee blew his whistle, I went to take my usual position. The captain came and warned me I'd be better to stay on the forward line. A few minutes later, the second line was called. I jumped onto the ice. The maple leaf sweater weighed on my shoulders like a mountain. The captain came and told me to wait. He'd need me later on defense. By the third period, I still had not played. One of the defensemen was hit in the nose with a stick, and it was bleeding. (laughs) I jumped on the ice. My moment had come. The referee blew his whistle. He gave me a penalty. He claimed I'd jump on the ice when there were already five players. That was too much. It was unfair. It was persecution. It was because of my blue sweater. I struck my stick against the ice so hard it broke. Relieved, I bent down to pick up the debris. As I straightened up, I saw the young viker on skate before me my child he said just because you're wearing a new toronto maple leaf sweater unlike the others, it doesn't mean you're going to make the laws around here a proper young man doesn't lose his temper now take off your skates and go to the church and ask God to forgive you. Wearing my maple leaf sweater, I went to the church where I prayed to God. I asked him to send as quickly as possible moths that would eat up my Toronto maple leaf sweater.
3: The beauty of Carrier's ending is that we leave our hero while he's still 100% defiant, 100% convinced that he's got God on his side, that he's completely in the right, regardless of what anyone else says. And that is why Shireen Ahmed loves it.
0: And it doesn't give you a happily ever after. And when I was young, there was not a lot of stories that were real. This is right, real. Right, right. It didn't give you this closer where everything turned out okay and you go back and you keep reading, is there more, is there more? No, you have to deal with what you're feeling. And these are one of those books that made you literally address how you were feeling when you read it because it, it didn't package it nicely and give you the finish you wanted.
3: The first paragraph of the hockey sweater may be what got onto the $5 bill. But the last paragraph and the image in the animated film of young rock high-fiving an imagined Maurice Richard who curls around his shoulder like some kind of goading demon is what has made this story a classic. The Hockey Sweater is about the times when life isn't fair and what it means to stand up for yourself, your allegiances, and your identity, even in the face of arbitrary power. Those who don't get The Hockey Sweater, eh, they don't quite get sports. But those who do, get the hockey sweater and right away from the moment the hockey sweater was first heard on the radio people got it
1: What hockey sounds like is changing. Now don't get me wrong, my pops loves his Metallica and Van Halen as much as the next blue-blooded fan out there and rightly so. But what I hear the team bump into in the gym or in the locker room or on the way to work, it reminds me that our very young team is keyed into some very dope tracks. That taste is featured in the Toronto Maple Leafs official playlist. From Never Seen the Rain by Tones and I to I Don't Care by Ed Sheeran and Justin Bieber to Loyal by Party Next Door and Drake, this playlist captures the young spirit of today's Leafs. Check it, and of course, all the other official Toronto Maple Leafs playlists exclusively on Apple Music or the Leafs app.
3: Here's Rock Carrier again. Now,
5: I was told that after the reading the story, they receive bags of mail. You know, in those days, there was no computer, no telephones. uh, (laughs) And uh, so people were writing with pens on papers, and they were putting that in the bag. And that's how it was going. So I never saw those bags but I was told that they received a lot of bags of mail about that story and I never understood what was happening and since that day this story has been a wonderful magical uh, for me for me the writer and for the perhaps for the the readers (laughs) just recently (laughs) two or three days ago I received a letter a lady Dear Mr. Carrier, would you sign a book? Last year, it says, you signed a book for my boyfriend. It was nice. Thank you very much for that. I have a new boyfriend. Would you you write a book? Today, I received a book to be signed. (laughs) I hope she would have many boyfriends.
3: (laughs) You're going to get one every six months for the rest of your life. Another person who got it, who couldn't quite help be moved by Rock's Story, was Maurice Richard himself.
5: For the launching of the book, there was uh, on CBC, local CBC here in Montreal, there was a show on television and Maurice Richard accepted to be, to be there. So he was introduced to the book and uh, that was at the moment that I met him the host asked Monsieur Richard, what do you think about the book? And he said, could I have some copies for my kids? So that was a very nice reaction. But I was with him later, later in Toronto. Maurice Richard was not playing anymore. Maurice Richard went to a very difficult time because at the end of his career, the, he, he was, uh, it was not going well with the management of the, uh, the Canadiens. And it was, people were saying that perhaps he would be moving to Toronto. And I wrote a book about Rocket Richard. I found a picture, a photograph of Rocket Richard wearing the maple leaf. Uniform. And I asked him, Monsieur Richard, is it true that you thought of moving to the Maple leaves of Toronto? He said, Yes. And I said, But Monsieur Richard, you did not move. How come you did not move? I said, Oh, it's because of my wife. Oh, your wife doesn't like uh, Toronto? No, 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 Uh, it's not that, he said. He said, my wife said, Maurice, if we move to Toronto, people are going to kill us. (laughs) So that's the reason.
3: (laughs) The story Rock pulled from his youth and knocked off in a day is now arguably the most famous story ever written about hockey. It's a Canadian classic, still read and loved across the country. That is the magic process by which art transcends its own context and becomes universal. That's how a short story about rural Quebec in the 40s speaks to a Pakistani-Canadian girl in Halifax in the 80s, helping to inspire her to live a life in love with sport and to call out the sport establishment at every turn. To Shireen, a lifelong hockey fan, the sport needs to do more, much more, to make itself inclusive and accessible. And it also needs to learn how to tell different stories about itself.
0: I've never felt like hockey is a problem. I feel like the systems and structures within hockey are the problem. This is, might be a hot taker an unpopular opinion. Having hockey central to Canadianness is perfectly fine with me. But expanding what hockey is, is the most important thing. Hockey can be... So many things. We had Haley Wickenheiser recently, you know, inducted into the Canadian Hall of Fame. She's literally teaching people in northern India how to play hockey. Women. She's teaching them. So it's like an ambassadorship almost. And it was beautiful. Like, Wick's out there on the ice. She's in medical school, and when she has time, she's running camps for girls. Like, that's that's pretty powerful stuff. And yes, the world looks to Canada to be leaders in this. So let's take it upon ourselves to expand what that means, reach out to the communities that need that support and amplification, and run with it, I think, or, you know, glide with it, whatever.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Let's take it. I think sport is an incredible way to connect communities and people. I connected my mother... a country that you know she called home and you know she was quite young and she was away from her home but it was her home now and it really did connect her quickly (laughs) that is very powerful to me and also really enjoying that and finding other pockets of fans that you can share in a passion you can share in enjoyment and the thrill the heartache I think stories like this are helpful because for me I wasn't you know young catholic boy hockey player was not (laughs) it was very much the opposite but I still could connect with the story and that's what's powerful about that's what makes it a damn good story and really powerful book for kids is that the way it was written the tenderness in which the story was shared the dedication like can you can you read the dedication absolutely I wish to dedicate the story to all girls and boys because all of them are champions It was one of the first books where I'd seen that girls were also Mm. included in a story that was presumably supposed to be about a boy in hockey, which was a boy's sport. So then again, um, Monsieur Carrier includes me in a space where very often not included. When I played hockey, I was one of, uh, probably the only little girl in a boys league. And I remember my mother telling me, I would take off my helmet, and two long black braids would come down. I had two braids. And they would say, it's a girl. I was pretty aggressive on the ice. Yeah. And the idea was, perhaps the intent was to be just surprised that, okay, she can skate and she's pretty firm on her feet, but was like, oh, wow, we're so shocked because this isn't where you should be, you know? So when I saw that dedication, I knew that it was okay for me to be thinking all these things about the story and I was being welcomed to do that. And I just really appreciated. it. I know I was, I remember feeling like, okay, I don't know this author, but they know me and they know about me, which is pretty powerful.
3: So we're interviewing Rock on Friday. Right. What should we ask him? Because I'm really lazy and I don't, I don't like to do my own research.
0: Um, how did he know to look into the souls of other little hockey fans? How did he know? please ask him if the jersey was eaten by mothballs because that'll change my perception of God.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's a
3: pretty big one. <laughs> that's a pretty big one. Yeah, you think there would have been a, like a sequel to like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. God mi- is real and he does stuff like that.
0: Um, I would ask him if he still watches hockey. I would ask him if he watches women's hockey. And my brain is churning. I would, if you could say thank you. And Merci, Monsieur Kerry, because you've given us a story that, in my opinion, is timeless. I'm a very critical writer. <laughs> I'm, I look critically at things in sports media and in sports. But this is something I'm not only protective of, but I just love and I think is timeless. So if you could also say thank you for that, because I'm not the only one. Like, this book will has gone and will go through generations of Ahmeds. So if you could do that too, that would be amazing.
5: Hello Shreen, it's uh, thank you for having paid attention of my little book and uh, read it to your kids (laughs) if you think it's okay. (laughs) Now I remember, you know, in, (laughs) in my village, when we were playing, the girls were not on the rink, they were on the side of the rink, admiring the heroes that we were, and probably many of them would have been better than (laughs) those on the ice. I would like to say that it's a precious, interesting, moving story that the experience of this little girl coming from away, I would say, and learning and struggling to play on the ice, to have the same privileges as the as the other kid. And she went through that fight and she what she became. It, it's a wonderful, wonderful success story. She should be very proud of herself and she will never, never, never forget all that learning process uh, to go to where she is now. And I wish her good luck.
3: And Shireen's words prompted some thoughts of his own about the future of the game.
5: Yeah, a, a problem I'm... Uh, thinking quite often about is now the cost of playing hockey and it is excluding number of future and possibly talented players you know in my days i must say a hockey sticks was 69 cents that's what i was paying in my little village you know so I was a choir boy helping the priest for the mass and all that. I was paid for every mass 10 cents. So I had to work seven masses to pay for my hockey stick. Today, no kids can can do that. And it's uh, something that I think the people involved in the management of the industry, they should look at, you know, because not only the rich, kids should be permitted to play that sport. It's a sport for everybody.
1: Okay, Mr. Matthews, I was a little suspicious when I found out that you were writing a podcast about this story, but it all kind of coincide together because we had our Next Generation game and it's all about the kids, right? And this story was all about kids.
3: It's all about the kids, yeah. that The Next Gen game on the 23rd was amazing. There's three more coming and there's there's four Marley's games coming, so I hope people can get excited and go out and engage with those. I totally recognize it. The hockey sweater on the face of it is not a Leaf story, but it also is a Leaf story, and it was a great way for us to open up a conversation about what hockey means in 2019 and what it's going to mean for the next generation of kids coming up.
1: Man, I used to do those wee days, and there's something about um, Scotiabank Arena in the afternoon, and kids just, it's like a sugar rush. They are the loudest fans in the building, and it's perfect because our involvement in MLC Launchpad, it was great to see some of those kids able to come to the game as well.
3: Yeah, it was great. So our brand team went down to Launchpad, met with a whole bunch kids a lot of whom had no experience with hockey yet and just ask them kind of like what does the game mean to you what would you like to see in the experience they gave us some awesome ideas and it was cool to see some of them starting to be implemented and some more are going to be implemented in the games going forward
1: now you're a young father though the grazing your hair would uh, say different thanks scott <laughs> <laughs> now you have a four-year-old they don't eight- need to know that you have a four-year-old and an 18-month-old um
3: do they have the hockey sweat they do. They do now. So my brother uh, gave my my four-year-old daughter the hockey sweater for Christmas. It was a, in a kind of large box of books. Cool. Um, she doesn't quite get it mm-hmm. yet, but I'm going to play the, the podcast. Hopefully that fills in some holes, some context. Yeah. My daughter's all about context. This is daddy's voice. <laughs> With like, a little bit of bass. This yeah. is boring, daddy. <laughs> uh, and then the, the cool thing is that Shireen who obviously played a big role in the podcast, yeah. gave us also like an alternative reading list. So a lot of really interesting books about what hockey means in different communities kind of open up what hockey can be and that the stories that we tell about the game. So we're going to include that in the show notes.
1: Your daughter was down at Scotiabank Arena on uh, December 23rd. How did she feel about her first Leaf game? She had a great time. Mainly she was excited to
3: see you <laughs> and Carlton and yeah. to eat a lot of popcorn, but she also had a great time watching the game. It was a great experience. and I think it was, it was nice to see the experience created and catered. Specifically for kids, and I think she she felt awesome
1: about it. Everybody loves that bear. And Paul, don't worry, your hair looks fantastic. Thanks for doing this for us. Thanks, Thanks. Scott. I appreciate it. We're a monthly podcast, so the next one will come out late January. Keep tuning into the team's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook feeds for updates on that, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app to ensure you get it right away when it drops. The pop music in today's episode can be heard on the official playlist of your Toronto Maple Leafs, available on Apple Music and the Leafs app. Today's episode was written by Paul Matthews and produced by Katie Jensen and Vocal Fry Studios for Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. A very special thanks to the beautiful people who helped us tell this story rock Shireen Shereen Ahmed, and Jenny Ellison, as well as Ellen Payne Smith, who did impeccable research, elegant pre interviews, and had the pleasure of spending time at Rock Harrier's house. Aaron Brandenburg for research assistance, and Erica Dreyer, our associate producer. If you've never read Rock Carrier's The Hockey Sweater or never watched Sheldon Cohen's gorgeous animated short film, well, you need to go out and do that immediately. The book is available wherever quality books are sold and the film can be viewed on the NFB website. If you've never read any of Shireen Ahmed's work, you'll want to do yourself a favor and definitely follow her on Twitter and subscribe to the Burn It All Down podcast. And if you like this episode, tell people about it and write us a review. Your feedback is always welcome. We'd love to hear what you think. I'm Scott Willits, and until next time, Go Leafs Go!